Hello, 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 and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is run with the assistance of the UTS Business School and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. Well, you can deck the halls with forward estimates. Christmas for the finance world has finally arrived with the federal budget 2020 putting pen to paper on a fiscal year for the ages. And with a deficit to the piercing tune of $213 billion, this year's tea leaves do not paint a pretty picture. Can we hitch our recovery wagon to tax cuts? Will big spending in business add up alongside a continuation of social distancing? Well, as they say in economics, you can never judge a budget until it's at least a week old, which is exactly what we plan on doing today. Joining me to find out whether this financial Christmas we'll be getting a new bike or a pair of socks is Nicole Sutton from the UTS Business School's accounting discipline, Richard Diabreo-Lorenko with the Centre for Health and Economics Research and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney, and Business School Industry Professor, as well as former ANZ Chief Economist Warren Hogan. At the heart of this year's budget seems to be quite a remarkable gamble by the government, sort of hedging their bets on a vaccine being available by the end of next year. Now, just to look at those eye-watering figures, the underlying cash deficit in 2020-2021 is expected to be $213 billion, 11% of GDP. However, it's expected to improve over those forward estimates to $66 billion in 2023-24 and down to $49.5 billion, which is 1.6% of GDP by the end of the medium term. So it's looking as though we have a recovery plan out of here, at least based on those forward estimates. So Richard, you're today's resident vaccine whisperer. So we'll start with (laughs) you. All of these forward estimates are packaged with this understanding that we will have a vaccine or at least that there is a concrete path to having one available. So just to start off this discussion, it's sort of its natural starting point. Is that a particularly dangerous assumption to make, particularly with those forward estimates showing signs of recovery in the economy? Thanks, Max, and thanks for inviting me um, onto the program. Um, is it a dangerous assumption? Well, uh, dangerous implies that we can predict predict with some sort of uh, reliability or not that this is all going to fall over. What we know is that the government has put quite a large and a substantial sum of money, $1.7 billion, towards two of the leading candidate vaccines, one from Oxford AstraZeneca and one from UQCSL. Um, and they're, they're doing that with the, with the understanding that one of those candidate vaccines uh, is likely, and I use that word in inverted commas, to show efficacy in its current clinical studies. Is it dangerous? Possibly, if it doesn't show that it's efficacious. And there's another possibly there, and that is that the Australian public don't take up the vaccine to the extent that the government would like. I'm sure Nicole is going to uh, touch on how dangerous that would be to then, to to, to the forward estimates in terms of what we might see in terms of our recovery, but whether or not a vaccine actually becomes available is still a matter for contention. It's still an unknown. It's looking good, but we can't say that one is coming. Um, We do have to point out that we've known about coronaviruses for some time, and as yet, we still haven't developed a vaccine. When we last spoke, we talked about the global effort that's gone into developing a vaccine for a coronavirus 
this time around. We've never seen a concerted international effort like we have this time. We are hoping that it will bear fruit, but until we actually see those vaccines and see the results of those uh, trials in publication, we won't be able to uh, say with any certainty or, uh, and I, again, I use that word in inverted commas, that we have a vaccine that we can comfortably roll out to the public. Now, Warren, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, the main issue right now is that we have a substantial amount of government support in the economy or have for the last six months. The, the main channel for that has been through the JobKeeper program, uh, but there's also been the elevated job seeker, cash flow payments to business, and, very, and various other things, the bank monitorium, where basically SMEs and, and, and individuals who, who want to suspend or are under economic pressure to can suspend their, their repayments on their loans. So the big issue is not so much do we need to do something more. The thing is we need to replace those emergency policies with something that's more sustainable from both a, an economic functioning point of view, as in to allow the economy to go back to the way it used to operate, where the private sector sort of was the main game for the Australian economy, but also from a cost point of view, those those government programs are hugely expensive. So that's really what it's all about, you know, on the on the on the idea that you know we're still going to have an economy that's under pressure for at least another year. It's just about how to go from one set of policy supports to another, um, and to facilitate a longer term recovery. Putting putting that strategy, that issue that the budget addresses face on you know, front onto the side, the question becomes. Well, well, can you actually sustain a much heavier role for government in direct income support to the community for a longer period of time? So it might not be JobKeeper. Um, it might be something more direct. That's effectively targeting in on uh, people who are either already on social security programs or people with low incomes. And then, you know, that then becomes an ideological question. Even if it's financially sustainable, the question becomes, is that the right thing over the longer term? Is that the best way to run our economy? And obviously this government said no. And look, there's, you know, different views on it, but, you know, how do you make sure you get innovation and productivity happening while you've also got people being a large chunk of the population supported by the government? And that's obviously the oldest story in the book. So that's the only other route that I could see. And and essentially one is a, a, a sort of a socialist route and one is more of a capitalist route. People like Ned Kelly or our, our cultural icons, these bush rangers and outlaws, it does lend something to the idea that potentially if there's a national rollout, there may be many people who aren't really willing to get the jab on behalf of their civic duty. Do you think that it's important for that to be constantly raised in any discussion about forward estimates? I, I, I do, Max. I think, it's, I think uh, vaccine uptake is a very, very important issue uh, because of the importance of population coverage and that is the how what percentage of the population is actually vaccinated the importance of population coverage to how effective it is the more people that are vaccinated the more effective that the vaccine is going to be in reducing transmission of of the virus of of, of the uh, coronavirus um, itself if we have a large proportion of the population who doesn't uh, take up the vaccination, then that will reduce the potential efficacy of the, of the vaccine. Now, that is, of course, all affected by a couple of things. One is how, effect, how, how uh, 
effective the vaccine is itself. And we don't know that yet because we don't know the results from the clinical studies. On the flip side is people's willingness to actually be vaccinated. And, and you, you mentioned the Australian larrikinism and the, and the Australian uh, uh, ideal of not necessarily always doing what we're told. Vaccination is an interesting example where we actually have very good immunisation rates for most of our um, uh, vaccination programs. We have very high vaccination rates in most areas. The COVID vaccine um, is going to be an interesting case because we have already seen media uh, stories where people have done surveys suggesting that perhaps uh, in the vicinity of 60 to 70% of people might take up the vaccine. That suggests that the uh, that, that uh, 30 to 40% will not. Um, we have also seen we're coming off a case where people are not um, happy about quite protracted uh, measures of lockdown and social distancing. So we're coming off a period of some social uh, unease where people might not want to be told again, this is what you must do uh, to stop the spread of this virus. So how that all plays out when governments might then ask people once again to be good, good social citizens and take one in the arm or the backside wherever we're going to be uh, injecting this vaccine um, for, for people to, to be vaccinated, that remains to be seen. And I might add, we didn't actually incorporate that into the budget. So there's nothing in the budget as, I, as far as I can tell about an awareness program and an education program um, and, and putting money behind getting out there and getting people vaccinated. So we're paying for the vaccines. We've got money in there to buy the vaccines from the manufacturers. But from what I could see from the budget papers, nothing about actually uh, educating the public and making sure that we get the uptake we need. And Nicole, obviously... It's understandable that there will always be optimism in a government's pitch to the public for what their budget contains. That's just politics 101. But to see that same optimism reflected in forward estimates, does that worry you at all, particularly when you look at this sort of fork in the road that we're presented with between vaccine or no vaccine? Does it worry you that maybe there hasn't been a full contingency plan at least laid out in full in the budget papers to explain what happens if this vaccine doesn't come to fruition in the time frame that we're all hoping? I would echo what Richard is saying in the sense that I think we need to understand what are assumptions that go into the, the budget. I mean, whenever we're forecasting in the future, we're going to forecast into uncertainty because we don't have a crystal ball. And so in that case, we have to make an estimate, we have to make an assumption, and we are going to be wrong. Like We are going to be wrong in what that forecast is. I think the critical thing is for us to be able to appreciate what are the kind of the crucial assumptions and what those impacts are. Now, I'm sure uh, in the depths of Treasury, they have got lots of different models with lots of different parameters will show the whole gamut, the whole array of different scenarios that play out given the timing of some of these measures. But I think you're right, Max, in the sense that it's tricky when you're communicating this to the Australian public about how much is, you know, how much we can bank on and how much we need to be 
uh, we need to be a little bit aware of, well, this is all contingent um, depending on a couple of key parameters. As you've already mentioned, deep within Treasury, I'm sure that there are those working very hard to build these models. But I know it may sound a little bit high school, but do they ever show their working to the public? Do we ever find exactly how Treasury have reached these Ford estimates? Well, actually, last year I went and I chatted with, I actually went to Treasury uh, and talked to them about how they um, how they actually put the federal budget together. Because uh, remember on budget night, I mean, the, the people who get the show is the, the Treasurer uh, and, and the Prime Minister. But really what's gone into making that um, has probably been, you know, six to nine months of work and going back and forth um, between both the kind of the federal, the federal government, the different departments, the different stakeholders, treasury, finance, and modelling these different things. I, I mean, I guess I would caution in terms of if we were to, I mean, the budget itself, if you were to print it out, is a massive document. Right. And so if we were to have to do that, but do that with, you know, three different scenarios, I mean, that's going to be an enormous document that I'm not sure how much we are going to make use of. So, I mean, I have a little bit of confidence in the sense that I know that they are doing that modelling behind the scenes. I think to your point, though, it's about the messaging and the messaging is here's our best guess but this is our assumption, uh, and if these assumptions are wrong, then watch this space. And we'll turn our attention to one of the crown jewels of this budget, the tax cuts. So the government's bringing forward its second stage of tax cuts, which means obviously millions of Australians will have more money in their wallets, potentially from mm-hmm. the end of this month. So it's planning on, it has backdated the cuts to July this year. Now it means people who earn between forty-five and 90000 will end up with an extra $1,000 in their pocket. But obviously it'll benefit higher income earners the most with people earning more than 90 grand taking home up to $2,500 extra. However, the statistics show that middle to high income earners are more likely to actually save that money as opposed to inject it back into the economy in the sort of stimulus way that we're all hoping. So once again, we return hitching our economic wagon to something, but are tax cuts able to get Australians engaging with the economy again, despite the fact that the budget also makes clear in black and white that social distancing will remain a reality, at least until the vaccine? Do you think that it's it's difficult to reconcile those two? Well, I think that's a really important question and one of the big issues in this budget. And and I think it's one of the reasons they didn't do the stage three tax cuts, which we know will sort of have their biggest beneficiaries for middle to higher income earners, which of course, what's the point of that? They're already saving a lot because there's restrictions on what they can spend. So those tax cuts would have no real economic impact. So the question is, is the tax cuts that they've given, the other payments they're making, the incentives they're providing to business, is it going to work even in a COVID normal economy with social distancing and border closures and this sort of thing? And and look, I think it, it's, it can. I think people are, are finding new ways to spend. And the reality is, is for, for low and middle income earners, you know, overseas holidays, going out to expensive restaurants or even going out to eat a lot are not necessarily part of their normal activity. And so I think that uh, a good chunk of this money will be spent, but it is an uncertainty. Um, and, and the other thing is everyday Australians, in fact, people all around the world, businesses all around the world are faced with more uncertainty than I've ever seen in my sort of 25 years 
of looking at the economy and the outlook, that in itself is a reason to be conservative and, and save a little bit more. So we have to we have to wait and see. Um, but the government has so far showed its 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 ability to target in and support those who are, are most impacted. And I'm sure if things don't turn out as well as they're currently expecting in this budget, that, that they that they can pivot again and that they can provide that direct in, in, income support if it's needed in the form of a higher job seeker, a one-off payment to job seeker recipients, more payments to pensioners and other social welfare recipients. So there's still room to manoeuvre. Yeah. So um, in these, uh, to me, uh, I think the budget represents two sets of assumptions. One of these assumptions we've been speaking about with Richard about when the vaccine's coming, when a border's opening, um, the kind of the, the, the reality that relates to what's going on with the pandemic. It also has a whole set of assumptions that sit around how do you actually get an economy going again? And the big assumption that's sitting behind this budget is the main way we're going to get it going is that we are going to be stimulating um, particularly the kind of consumer spending and the private sector using the using kind of the tax element of the budget as opposed to, say, government spending, um, which would be a kind of a way of doing it that Anthony Albanese kind of outlined when he did his budget reply a few days later. So there is this big assumption there about the way in which we can get this economy going is that we can play around with the tax settings um, in the sense that we can either give individuals tax cuts or in particular there's a lot, I mean, to, to be honest, the amount of money in terms of t- on the tax side, the amount of money that's going to business dwarfs the amount that's going to, to individuals. Um, I mean, most of it is actually around the incentives that sit around buying capital assets. It's around the R&D tax incentive. I mean, this is doing the really heavy lifting for the government uh, within this budget. And that's a big assumption about, well, if we put, if we kind of give businesses and individuals technically more money in their pocket, will they actually go and spend it? And critically, and this is the thing that the, that Josh Frydenberg is betting on, that if pe- this is going to lead to jobs. And to me, this is perhaps the bigger question mark behind the budget and the one that, yeah, I'm, I'm just not so sure about. And what are some of the things that particularly raise cautions? Yeah, okay. So for me, I, I mean, when you listen to the, the Treasurer's speech, uh, I think it's been made about how many times he said the word jobs. I think it's like 30 plus he said jobs in the space of about half an hour, which, you know, okay, it's jobs, jobs, jobs. So over the weekend, um, oh, it's a lovely, lovely day outside, but not going to do that. I, I dug through the budget papers, looking at all the different measures that are in there that kind of come under what this $74 billion plan for job maker. Um, and there's 36 different initiatives within the kind of the house of job maker of all the things that the government is hoping is going to lead to a creation of jobs. Uh, but when you, I was like, okay, so if I was to, without looking at it, guess where you'd expect the money to be going if it's going to be job maker, you probably expect money to be flowing through infrastructure, so big kind of infrastructure projects. That's one way to kind of create jobs. And the other way is through, you know, education, skills, employment. But when you look within the house of JobMaker and the 36-odd programs there, the vast majority of it, in fact, it's, I think it comes out at about 70, just under 75% of, of that $74 billion is just flowing through the Treasury and mainly just going through these big tax incentives. 
So to create jobs, this is the main way they think it's going to happen, is that they are going to get particularly the private sector to spend money buying machines, to potentially spend money on R&D, to hire some apprentices and they'll get kind of the payroll, it comes out in the payroll tax. These kind of elements is going to lead to the creation of jobs. Now, this is me showing my hand as an accountant. To me, one of the things that we have to think about is if you're having a government that's spending money through other means, through particular Um, departments, for example, through particular policies, particular programs, that has a couple of things associated with it. One, it has, it goes through, say, if it goes through employment or skills or education, and it's a spend, they typically have to, you know, account for what's happened to that money. Whereas if it's flowing through the ATO, I mean, we're now just relying on the ATO to be making sure that those businesses are actually spending that money on the things that they are, they're meant that are eligible. The other side, though, is that, you know, we're not, we're not actually rewarding for outcomes. All we're doing is rewarding for spend uh, as opposed to, you know, we, we send this money to a particular program. We say we want to achieve these sorts of outcomes and we measure it. If we just give a tax write-off, well, we actually don't know what bang for buck we're getting. But the final thing that's a little bit concerning for me is typically in, in this country, when you have a government, when you do a government spending program, it usually has an end date. You know, we're going to do this over the next five years and then it's over. But when you play around with tax settings, you lock them in. And so what the government in doing, in, in stimulating the economy, using its tax settings, we are now locking in a, a lower revenue base for future years. Good luck to the government that has to come around and change those settings and adjust those settings because there's one thing that doesn't seem to fly very well uh, within the, uh, the general kind of population is the increase in tax. And so now we've actually locked in these settings kind of in perpetuity until someone has kind of the political clout to be able to change them again. So those are the things that are kind of concerning me. And do you fear at all that there's a government, be it Labor or Liberal, a few election cycles down the track who are going to have this revenue bubble burst upon them? Uh, Well, the revenue bubble will burst in a couple of respects. And one is if the economy actually doesn't get going at all, um, then, you know, if if people are not earning money, if people are, businesses are not making profit, then the government revenues, there won't be a bubble. (laughs) Uh, It will just, um, it it will, will be in trouble in that regard. But I think the point I'm making is that when you play around with the tax settings, these things become structural as opposed to when you have, we have the approach of um, trying to stimulate the economy through spending, there tends to be greater accountability, transparency and an end date. And so I think one of the things that has come out of the coverage of the budget this year is that this is an enormous budget. This is, these are astronomical figures. You get lost in all the zeros. And if you've seen what the zero, <laughs> compared to the previous budgets that you look at, like the number of zeros, it just makes your head spin. And it's sometimes easy to kind of forget about how much money we're just spending because it seems almost like monopoly money. But it's a huge amount of money. And so with that, we need to make sure that we're actually going to get bang for buck for, for the amount of money that we're going to be spending and making sure that we've got transparency and accountability over where that, that, that those resources are going. And Richard, do you have anything to add? Um, I, I mean, I share all of uh, 
the comments that Nicole just made about the ability to stimulate the economy through tax cuts, but also what that does to future government's ability to raise revenue to deal with uh, deficits that may come out of the current budget. I'm not someone who's uh, overly concerned about government deficits because I think government spending uh, has a definite place in our economic cycle, uh, particularly where we are at the moment. But as Nicole said, tax cuts become structural. We all saw what happened when uh, a previous government tried to introduce a uh, royalty on uh, resources extractions, so-called mining tax. Um, That was not favourable and indeed one might suggest that that resulted in the change in a government. So changing tax tax law once it has become enshrined is very, very difficult. So our capacity to deal with future deficits and to raise revenues for government spending in the future has just become more difficult. Have we done that without being able to also stimulate our economy out of its current position? That remains to be seen, and I'm sure that um, the Treasurer sweats that question quite often. Now, Nicole, you've also been busy taking a closer look at the $2 billion boost in additional research and development tax incentives. Uh, Now, Mm. from everything you've gathered, there's a whole lot more going on than just your regular tax break. So could you explain what you've found? Yeah, so the R&D tax incentive, I mean, it's fascinating stuff, right? This is the thing that's going to keep you up at night. Um, It's played a bit of a game of hokey pokey over the last few years where, yes, some years it's in and some years it's out. You throw it in, you throw it about. So what's kind of, it? again, it probably slipped under the radar because, I mean, it's only an extra $2 billion um, that we're throwing this way in the next kind of four years. But what's interesting is this was one particular area of reform that the coalition government, they they brought in two years ago um, because of a review of the R&D tax incentive. Okay, bit of context. The way in which this government supports innovation, or the Australian government supports innovation, the biggest plank of how, how they do that in this country is actually through this tax incentive to business. So it, it comprises about a third of all the money that governments spend, you know, on science, on tech, on, you know, on sent to public research agencies, the research funding it gives to universities, a third of it. So its biggest kind of plank in its policy is to provide a tax incentive to businesses where in the sense that they, the, the, they get some of the money back from the government on the money that they spend on R&D. So a couple of years ago, in 2016, the government, Turnbull government launched an inquiry just to check whether or not this was actually you know, delivering good, it was delivering against the program objectives. And so they convened a review, 90 submissions from businesses, from consultants, from people within the innovation ecosystem, and they came up with a couple of recommendations saying that they needed it, that the program needed to be tweaked so that it was better targeted to the areas that are likely to deliver those innovation benefits uh, that, are stra- that, that they're looking for for Australia. And so a couple of tweaks, they brought in uh, a, a cap on the amount of kind of cash that could get refunded to smaller organisations. And they brought in this, t- this tiering system for large organisations but it, which basically meant that for organisations that were spending a lot more of their money on R and D, they got a bigger um, they got a bigger offset, which kind of makes sense because you want to be rewarding the companies that do, are doing R and D really intensely, as opposed to the ones that are just doing it as a very small part of their operations. So they brought in 
you know, I was in the budget in 2018 and they brought in these four tiers um, for large organisations and this, this cap for small organisations. Six months later, um, they, the, when it came to legislate, the government balked a little bit in the terms of the start date. So they pushed back the start date by a year and they said, oh, you know what, four tiers is a little bit tricky in terms of it's a little bit complicated for large organisations. Let's simplify it. Let's make it three tiers. Uh, and now 18 months later, what they've done is that cap that was on, on the cash that would be paid back to small organisation, that's gone. Um, and those four tiers down to three tiers are now just down to two tiers. And so if you look at what's happened over the course of, you know, three or four years, we're actually back at a point by which the kind of incentive system is ostensibly just just as, if not potentially more generous than the one they had before. Now, it's not my job to, I, I don't think, I don't want to slam um, or kind of, I, I don't want to have a go at the government putting money towards innovation. I think that's great. And in terms of ways to stimulate um, our long-term economic recovery, I think funding innovation generally is a fantastic idea and a great way of spending money. I guess the thing I'm thinking is, that, you know, again, is this the best way by which we can get what we're looking for? Uh, and what was interesting in um, that, as, as part of that review they did a few years ago, um, some economists looked at the incentive in terms of the amount of money that's going to private businesses, and they considered, you know, the cost benefit of that, particularly in relation to other ways you could spend that money, you know, like, you know, funding other research programs. Now, it's really tricky to see with, with, when you're dealing with innovation policy, it's really hard to see the benefits or to measure the benefits because there's so much unknown. So they tend to kind of develop different models with different parameters and so on. But what was interesting was that they said, compared to spending this money on other research programs, the money going towards a business tax incentive could be, it could come out on top, Yeah could come out on top. But what was interesting, it was only when the parameters were set at the best case. So what do we take away from that is that, you know, in terms of where the money goes, if we wanted to stimulate, in this case, innovation, well, giving money to businesses to pay for their R&D or to pay a portion of their R&D expenditure could have a net benefit. It could be better than, for example, putting money into other research programs through the universities or the CSIRO but only if our assumptions of how that tax incentive works is in the kind of the best case scenario. If we look at what's in the budget this year, we've got $2 billion extra, $2 billion extra going to the tax incentive, which is double the amount that they're sending to universities and almost five times the amount, extra amount that they send in the CSIRO. So I guess it just goes back to what we were talking about before. This government really believes in the ability of tax incentives to get the economy going rather than just spending it um, through kind of particular like specific expenditure measures. I, I think it's interesting that we've been talking over the last few minutes obviously about some of these old school liberal tactics for stimulating economies. You cut taxes, you cut the red tape, you allow the market to do the work and the heavy lifting for you. Um, but it does raise a really interesting question about what actually constitutes an economic plan Nicole, you've mentioned that a great deal of that funding, I think you said around 75%, has gone directly to Treasury. So it comes across like a passing of the buck. Is it fair to leave 
such a responsibility in the hands of the public service? Or do you think that governments should be doing more governing with the revenue that they've received from taxpayer dollars? I I wanted to throw in a phrase you guys may not remember because it's an old phrase, trickle-down economics. It was a very popular phrase back in the 80s when Reagan was um, president of the United States and it was the idea that if you stimulate the top end of town, they will create enough activity uh, and it'll make the it, it make it better for everybody. And that, in essence, is what we're doing here with um, many of these tax breaks for the top end of town. Um, I think Nicole has articulated very well um, that that doesn't always work. Um, now, whether that can be conceived of a plan, that's a matter of interpretation. Um, the, I think the government would argue very strongly that it is a plan. Um, history might tell us that it's not always been a very effective plan um, and uh, that perhaps it hasn't always produced the growth that governments have wanted it to produce. Is that going to work in this case? Uh, there's shrugging of the shoulders on this end of the of the line. And I shrug my shoulders because we don't know. Uh, as I say, history has shown us that it hasn't always worked, but this is an unusual situation in which we are operating. Uh, so I don't want to be pes- always pessimistic about these things, but if history tells us anything, it's that tax incentives don't work to the extent that governments would like them to. The budget, while it may have benefited many people, women have been left to the wayside. $240 million of funding measures for the next four years, which obviously when you compare to that $257 billion in direct economic support from the government, it's an absolute fraction. So the argument being made by the government is that women pay taxes, women have jobs, and that all the other economic measures will be more than enough. Do you think that that argument's fair? at all? I think in one sense, yes, you're right. You know, we have we have measures in measures in the budget, you know, which can benefit everybody. But I think the issue is that if you look at where the bulk of the money is going in terms of the different industries that are being supported by these measures and the sorts of industries that can take advantage of some of these tax incentives. So the biggest measure that you mentioned before is the capital asset uh, write-off, and that's the biggest thing. That's $26.7 billion over the next four years. So you think about the sorts of organisations that can benefit from um, being able to get a tax deduction for uh, buying assets. Uh, And these organisations generally, you know, have to be profitable and they have to be, you know, buying things. So they're going to be things like agriculture, they're going to be things like resources, they're going to be things like infrastructure, construction. Um, They're less likely to support industries which are more service-based uh, and the crit- so, you know, education or hospitality, the arts, um, these are less capital intensive uh, industries. And so they're not going to benefit from that sort of tax program. And the critical thing there is that, you know, if you look at the spread of which, uh, what the kind of gender, gender balance, what the gender balance is for each of these different industries, the industries which have been the hardest hit, the arts, education, other services, tourism, Uh, these are ones that are not necessarily getting the most support and they also happen to be the ones that have a higher participation rate um, by women. And so this is the kind of issue in terms of it's not necessarily a fair, but it's not a fair budget um, in that 
you have industries which uh, tend to be more male dominated are getting a lot of money through this through this budget, where industries that have more female participation are getting much less. And you're right that the 200, the 230, 240 million dollars of programs that were this, I think it's got it's again this is within House of Jobmaker. It's got a really funny name. This one, it's called the Women's Second Security Package. I mean, $240 million is compared to the amount of money that's going in overall is really quite, really, really quite small. I mean, it's it's 1% the size of that uh, capital asset write-off program. So this kind of gives you a sense about why there's been such um, criticism in that respect and all the fact that there was some some clear other measures within the budget that were, again, raised by Anthony Albanese, such as the opportunity to invest in childcare, um, which, you know, if the government had pursued, would actually back uh, the Treasurer's statements that there was things here, there were things in the budget for women. The capacity for this government to break through its ideological constraints, particularly in the early phases of the pandemic, uh, I think highlighted something more about the Australian character than anything to do with politics. And that is Australians are highly principled people, but at the same time, we're, we're ruthlessly pragmatic. It's part of the success of the country. And, and getting that balance right um, in our political life, in our business life, in our personal life is a real hallmark, I think, of, of Australia. And that's what they did. And, and, and if this means that going forward, there won't be this sort of complete focus on balanced budgets and I do think that the government went a little bit overboard on that in the last couple of years I think we could have done a bit more strategic fiscal stimulus in order to support the economy ahead of the pandemic it wasn't going to happen under that government's watch because they did want to get a budget back in depth into balance and I, and I, I just don't think that, that that's going to be the, the same imperative on this government or any government now for the next decade if not more so I think it is a big change but the really big issue is is not that capacity to use fiscal policy. It's about how you use it. And, and I hope we're also going to see a, a continuation of the use of the government's financial power to address inequalities, unfairness in, in our community. And, and look, they do do that and we do do that as a civilised society, but I think we've done that a lot better in the last year. And I think we need to continue to, because I think one of the one of the sort of handful of major challenges to our society and other democracies is inequality. We'll let you make your own mind up on today's analysis. Once again, thank you to Nicole Sutton, Richard diabria Lorenko, and Professor Warren Hogan. I've been your host, Max Tillman. I'll see you again next week. <laughs>